Welcome to Offkey, a Membran Labs podcast about the music industry for the industry novice. I'm your host, Talia Seidman-Wright. This season of Offkey will be taking a turn down a new path, moving on from the who question towards the how-to. My hope is that this next season will act as a music industry 101, providing accessible information for industry newcomers like myself who are interested in building an understanding of what it means to be a creator in Canada's music industry. Join me as I learn about the ins and outs of the music industry from the perspective of two key players in the creation of music, the songwriter and the recording artist. Through research and conversations with music professionals, I'll explore how these creators make money and who and what they should be aware of as they build careers in the ever-evolving music business landscape. When I first started my research for this podcast, I was overwhelmed by the scope of the music industry. I quickly realized that trying to understand and formulate all of the industry's various facets in one season of a podcast would be near impossible. So I decided it would be helpful to both my learning and that of any off-key listeners to look at the industry from the point of view of music creators. In the creation of music, the songwriter and the recording artist represent two distinct parts of a musical work. In order to explore these two sides of the coin, we will follow these characters throughout the music industry for this season of off-key looking at the performer and songwriter's teams, or people they might want to involve in their work, their rights and collections of royalties, funding resources in Canada, digital streaming, distribution, promotion, and the future of the music industry at large. To start, let's unpack what the terms songwriter and recording artist really mean. There seems to be some grey area in the general public's understanding of these roles, as they often are assumed to be one and the same. I've definitely made this assumption myself, often realizing later on that the work by artists I love often involves many more people in the creation process than just the artist who I was a fan of. The terms artist or musician are commonly used to refer to a range of music creators, including people who write songs, people who perform songs written by other people, and people who perform songs they wrote themselves. Wikipedia defines musician as anyone who composes, conducts, or performs music a definition which reflects the vagueness of the term. Now, it is not inaccurate to refer to either a songwriter or performer as an artist or musician. However, in thinking about music, it's important to understand the two distinct components of a musical work, which is the composition created by the songwriter and the sound recording created by the recording artist. While someone may be both songwriter and performer, and thus carry the rights of both roles, these are two distinct fields in the industry with different revenue streams. Many songwriters work behind the scenes writing songs for recording artists. For example, a songwriter behind some of the biggest hits in pop music over the past two decades is Max Martin, who has written or co-written songs from Britney Spears' Baby One More Time to The Weeknd's Can't Feel My Face. While Max Martin is the songwriter, Britney Spears and The Weeknd are the recording artists. Just so we're clear on terminology, let me clarify with regards to the recording artist. To start, I'll be using the term recording artist and occasionally performer to refer to the person who performs in a recording setting. However, later on in the season, we'll discuss the various teams associated with both the recording and live performance sides of music, where we'll differentiate more between the recording artist and the live performing artist. While these roles can be occupied by the same person, and often are, we'll approach them as two separate characters in different fields that make up the music industry. For now, though, we'll focus on the songwriting and recording sides of music, since those processes would occur before performing and touring. 
I had a chance to speak with some industry professionals about the differences between songwriters and recording artists. I spoke with Götz Bulla, a senior product and label manager at Membrane Entertainment Group, who has over three decades of experience working in a range of roles in the industry, from radio to writing to artist discovery and development. I also spoke with Catherine Calder, an artist and member of the Canadian band The New Pornographers, and owner of Oscar Street Records, who has over 20 years of experience as a songwriter and recording artist. Here's what they had to say. Up until 100 years ago, those were two separate roles most of the time. I mean, it was the exception that somebody could compose songs, also write lyrics, and then also perform these songs. It, it was that was mostly if you if you look at the so-called now I'm even you know that's not even Mozart was presumably a, a great musician, so was mm-hmm. Bach and Beethoven and all of them, but but talking about modern pop music, let's say, or the right. the roots of that. Um, totally. These Tin Pan Alley songwriters um, sat down and had an office with a piano and said, what today? And then had so-called song pluggers with New York clubs to uh, also playing the piano and singing and sitting down and going like, here's a new song for you. I think it'll, <laughs> it'll, really, it'll be really good for you. Play it once, leave them with the lyrics, day it would be uh, in their repertoire i mean right of nature boy oh, for where eden abes this guy who lives in the hollywood hills of course that's the 50s but still he lives there he he's a hippie <laughs> and he writes these lyrics who he writes this song and he thinks it thing for nat king cole to to have that song, to to perform that song, Nicole actually listens to this man and takes the melody and the lyric, turns it into a the hit that we now yeah. Know. And so yes, there wow. was. I don't know if you've ever heard Eden Abe's uh, own recording. No. <laughs> he can. He has a lovely speaking voice and sing really and they're i mean not as as well as nat king cole for sure right and um mentioned motown you know there there were people who were just writing the songs and and knew that yes this would be something for the temptations this would be something for the supremes get stevie in and have him (laughs) try that one (laughs) In, in the very high upper echelon of the pop world, it's gone back to the Tim Pan Alley days where somebody mm-hmm. goes, okay, we have this artist. Uh, her last album was number one. There's, you know, platinum hits on there. Um, we need to call these writers, it's more producers even, right. um, to create tracks for her um and right. it's not well let's wait a couple of years until she comes up with new music um that's <laughs> uh, yeah that's somehow 
you know, very few people have time for that. One side is the composition and the other side is the, is the performance. And not only, you know, there's the live performance and all that. And sort of the artist gives it life. You know, there are some artists right. who can take music and any kind of lyric and make it shine. You know, they, um, she or he could sing the, the phone book and right. make it sound great. <laughs> and, and there are those artists. <laughs> and most of the others need songwriters to create material for them. Gladys Knight and the Pips. I don't know if they ever wrote a song in their life. I'm right. not yeah. 100% sure. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to say anything wrong. And I love Gladys Knight. But I don't think she's, you know, wrote some songs for her. And they're just brilliant. Yeah. And they sound very much Gladys. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, that just thinking I would probably, well, actually my kids asked. So I said, sits down with a guitar or at the piano, thinks of something to write a, or sing a song about. And they mm -hmm. do that. And then they notate it and write out the lyrics. And somebody else who's a much better singer and, and probably a much better guitar or piano player goes, wow, can I record this? And when they record it, all of a sudden, it's, you know, that original composer sees or hears from <laughs> how he intended that, uh, that whatever he to sound. And, yeah. and that's where, where the difference is. You know, some people, I mean, they're, I think they're really, even though there are so many singer-songwriters out there, there are very few people who can do both. Yeah, and like historically, actually, they used to be way more separated. So like you have the Brill Building, which was this building of songwriters in New York, where Carol King came from, and I think Paul Simon did some songwriting there, and like all these amazing like um, songwriters. Um, and the performers, that was a completely different art form that you weren't expected to do all of it. You know, if you were a songwriter and your gift was the ability to write an amazing song with a catchy hook, you know, um, or many catchy hooks, then you weren't really expected to then also be the person comfortable being in front of the camera and being on the stage and doing all the dance moves and stuff like that. Like it used to be like very separated, not everything, of course, not everyone like country music, I think was often very much like intertwined, but, um, but then we got into like the singer songwriter and Joni Mitchell and, you know, the kind of folk scene and, and that started to change a little bit with like folk and rock. And then, and then, um, so there's still like a very big, um, industry for people who love writing songs and who don't want to perform. Um, and there's an industry for people who love performing, but don't write, write their own music. And it, it's just makes it, I think, um, it just is a diff totally different approach and different perspective. And it, it neither, neither one is better than the other. They're both just different and they involve, one involves more delegating than the other. The other involves like kind of more creative control, but it also requires you to be kind of like really good at a lot of different, very different things. So that's why like music is so interesting because there are so many different ways of being in music. You know, you 
you can be a musician, you can be a songwriter. Um, usually those are related because to write songs requires generally some kind of knowledge of music. Um, <laughs> but um, but you can be a session musician where all you do is you go and you play with other people. Um, you don't have to write your own songs. You can just play music. You know, you can be a classical musician. Um, mostly that a composer is very different from a, you know, performer in the classical uh, world. And there's all kinds of genres and all kinds of all kinds of things. And um, it's just kind of about picking what you're best at and what you enjoy doing and um, figuring out how to make it work for yourself. So, for clarity's sake, let's think of the songwriter and the recording artist as two key characters in the storyline of a song's creation. And along with each role comes a distinct set of rights. In music, rights can be understood as entitlements that determine what exactly can be done with a piece of music and who should be compensated. So, what rights do songwriters hold? What are session musicians' rights? And what rights does a record label have over a recording? These questions are all really important when it comes to thinking about rights in music. And the starting point for answering them is to understand the two main types of rights over a musical work. The songwriter or songwriters and the music publisher hold composition or publishing rights, while the performer and often the record label hold sound recording or more commonly called master rights. If I explained it to a beginner, I would probably take some sheet music in mm-hmm. one and a record in another. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. And say, you know, basic, very basically, those are the differences. Along with Catherine and Goetz, I spoke with Byron Pascoe, an entertainment lawyer at Edwards Law, which focuses on music, TV, film, game, and digital media industries. So for every composition, there could be one recording or an unlimited amount of recordings of that composition. And that's kind of a key starting point that I like to talk about when we're talking about composition and recording rights, because again, for every composition, um, you know, there's usually one, one main recording of it, but when there, but when a song is quite popular and there are cover versions of it, then there might be many, many master recordings of a specific composition. So if you're a band and you have a song Um, the version that you put on the album and that gets recorded um, and released into the world is kind of like one version of a song. And so that, that version that gets recorded is called the master and the song, you could do a live version and it would be different from the recorded version, but the song, it all links back to the song and the composer who wrote the song. And, um, and so they are treated differently because sometimes you'll have a performer who, um, isn't the songwriter and, uh, you know, like if you're doing like a cover version of a song, let's say, you know, like you want to do somebody else's song, um, you know, like Katie Lang did a, did, um, Hallelujah by Leonard Leonard Cohen is like, you know, like a classic example. And so Leonard Cohen wrote the song and Katie Lang did the recording. And um, so Leonard Cohen gets paid a certain amount every time the song gets played. And Katie Lang um, 
doesn't get any of the composition side of the of the the music money. She, she would get the performer side of the music money. It's it it isn't really that complicated, but but it kind of is. Like it, it like you can break it. It gets broken down further, and then that's where it gets complicated. But this like this is sort of um, you know like Leonard Cohen could release like eight hundred different versions of Hallelujah. And they would all be linked back to his one composition that was called Hallelujah. So with the composition, um, you see the starting point is you have a songwriter. The songwriter may have a co-writer. The co-writer or songwriter may have a producer uh, who helps him or her with the development of the composition. And so it's really important between, um, let's say, the singer-songwriter and his or her collaborators, how they define their share of the composition. And so preferably this is done proactively. Usually it's not. Um, And if there are discussions about sharing a composition, there might just be a very vague discussion or there might be a split sheet that's entered into or there might be a more formal agreement. From my perspective, I mean, the starting point is at the very least having some kind of discussion about how the composition is being split up because it's a lot easier to deal with those issues in advance as opposed to later on, especially later on if there's money that's been generated or that will be generated from a composition. As for sound recording rights, so the the starting place on that I would say is who owns the master recording of the song. Um, and what are th- that person's obligations to other people? So if an artist um, were to write a song himself, recorded himself on his own you know, system uh, and put it out there into the world, you know, without anybody else involved in the process, it's pretty clear that you know, he, owns, he owns the master recording. But if he goes into a studio and has a producer and an engineer and uh, you know, some studio people record his, his, his singing of his song and, and the recording of his instruments, then you have the studio who has this master recording and they should be giving those rights to the artist in return for you know, whatever they're being paid. And so when we're talking about sound recording rights, an artist may have obligations to his or her producer then they have obligations to his or her um, co-writers. Uh, and they have obligations to her manager. Uh, for people who have labels, the label generally controls the distribution of the sound recordings. The label earns money and the label pays the artist a fee depending on the royalty um, formula that they agree to by contract. What you want to do in all of these situations is define clearly in writing who is entitled to what. So kind of to, to bring to bring composition and sound recording rights together, an artist, without working with anybody else, is going to exploit her music and be entitled to everything. And as more and more people come into the fold to either co-write or to produce or to help to distribute, um, then the then there's a formula that's created about who's entitled to what and you know how the how the money flows because it may or may not flow to the artist directly it may flow to somebody else directly and then to the artist and to the other people um 
you know, th there are only so many different formulas, but there isn't just one way of, uh, of cash flow and uh, royalty distribution. Just like human rights, rights in music are only guaranteed if certain laws are in place to protect them. In Canada, music creators' rights are protected under the Federal Copyright Act, which covers all provinces and territories. Canada has ratified many international agreements relating to copyright, meaning that Canadian citizens are granted copyright protection in all participating nations. In reality, copyright cases that cross borders can be pretty complex, given that each country has their own laws, but we'll get into this more later in the season. For now, we'll just focus on understanding what exactly a copyright is in music. What I found throughout my research is that, in its most basic definition, a copyright ensures the exclusive legal right of a creator to control and be compensated for the use, reproduction, and performance of their intellectual property. So the most common question that probably all music lawyers get is, how do I copyright this music? And the answer is probably it's already, it's already attracted copyright by virtue of the fact that it was written or recorded. And so if I have an idea for a song that's not protected by copyright, if I write the song, you know, on my computer or on my napkin or on, you know, whatever, um, there's copyright protection in that work. If I record a song, there's copyright protection in that work. There's, there's copyright in the composition and then there's copyright in the recording. Um, but the key, the kind of the key takeaway is that copyright is copyright rights are generated automatically once a work is um, put into a tangible form, whether that's in writing or recording. Copyright doesn't does not protect ideas, and if people register their copyright with here in Canada, the Canadian Intellectual Property Office, or in the United States with the U.S. Copyright Office, that does not trigger copyright. What it does is it provides some additional rights, especially in the case of when there's a dispute with someone who thinks that they stole your music or in which you think you know, someone else stole your music. So um, registering, registering with what's called the government does not trigger copyright. It just it does provide some additional um, help if there is, if, including if there's a legal action that's, that's going to potentially be taking place. But kind of the, the practical, the the practical takeaways of, of copyright is that um, you want to have clarity as between the people you're working with about who owns and control, well, who owns the composition and who owns the recording. And then register those, you know, register that information with the relevant parties. Registration of copyright is key for any creator to get royalties. In Canada, the main organizations that songwriters should register with include SOCAN or CMRRA, which collect royalties for public performance and reproduction of compositions in their catalogue. Performers and master rights owners should register with the Recording Artists Collecting Society or Connect Music Licensing in Canada, which collect royalties for public performance of sound recordings in their catalogue. We'll go deeper into this in future episodes when we look at collections for both the songwriter and the recording artist. Understanding what rights you hold over your music is important for you to be able to protect and control its use. But knowing your rights is also important because rights equal royalties. 
So if you're looking to make money as a songwriter or recording artist, or both, if you occupy both roles, what rights you hold will determine what money you make. So what are the various rights that generate income for songwriters? And what about those for recording artists? Rolling Stone magazine explains royalties as the amounts of money paid to rights holders when their creations are sold, distributed, used in other media, or monetized in any other way. So, the particular rights that a music creator holds determines the stream through which they make money. From what I've gathered, there are three main types of income-generating rights for both songwriters and recording artists, and associated rights holders on their team. The first is mechanical rights, which refers to the right to mechanically reproduce a song, for example on records, cassettes, CDs, or digital downloads. A way of explaining mechanical rights could be to refer to the physical reproduction of music, However, today, mechanical royalties include streaming, so perhaps physical is not totally conceptually accurate. Mechanical royalties are generated from a variety. So mechanical royalties generally is when you're, when you're copying or pressing a song. Um, like when, when there were, um, let's say, a lot of CDs being made or vinyl recordings, there'd be a, there'd be a fee that's paid uh, to get the license to, to get the mechanical license to, to press the CD. And, you know, these days there are mechanical royalties that are generated from digital downloads, from physical copies being produced, and also from streaming. The amount of money, you know, are, it's, it's a lot less on streaming compared to a physical copy or a download, but it's still there. The second income generating right is public performance rights which involves the playing of a song on the radio or streaming online in bars and restaurants, arenas, or other public spaces. Basically, this covers any time a song is played in a public setting. Um, public performance royalties. This, what I'd be thinking of in that context is uh, PROs, performance rights organizations. Um, and in Canada, we have SOCAN. In the States, they have um, BMI, CSAC, and ASCAP. The PROs work with each other internationally. So, for example, if your music is played on radio and on TV in Japan, Japan should be paid money by the relevant uh, radio stations and TV networks. And, and JASRAC, who's the PRO in Japan, would have a deal with so have as a deal with SOCAN. And so, let's say music is played in Japan. The relevant companies pay, pay JASRAC, JASRAC pays SOCAN, SOCAN pays you. So just because you're a member of SOCAN doesn't mean that you're only getting money when your music is performed in Canada. It's, you know, it's collected eventually by SOCAN and SOCAN eventually pays you. And the more you can tell SOCAN about the uses of your music, the better they can help you to collect the money that you're entitled to. The third main type of income generating rights is synchronization rights which refers to the use of a song in a video format, such as a film or TV show. Sync rights. Um, so synchronization royalties. Um, when a song is placed on uh, in a TV show or a film or in a video game um, or in an advertisement, there's money paid up front to use the composition and the, and the master recording. And Generally, it's 50-50 in terms of percentages. 50% of the upfront fee goes towards the master recording. 50% goes towards the, the publishing rights, the right to use the composition, also called the synchronization license. The master use license provides the right to use the master. It's a master use license. 
So when we're talking about sync rights, there is some overlap of the, of the jargon, but generally speaking, it's referring to it, it included within what it's covering is when there is a placement of a song into a, let's call it moving picture. Um, and there needs to be um, rights provided by whoever owns the master and whoever controls the composition. So let's say there's a movie um, and they would like to use your song um, in their trailer for their, for their film. And um, so they would usually write a contract um, and they would sp specify, like there's, there's usually like a total amount that they have a budget for. Let's say just like keep it a really big round number and say $10,000, <laughs> you know, um, let's say they want to use your song and it's going to be $10,000. So that means that all in, which means that 5,000 of that goes to the songwriter and 5,000 goes to the, the master. So it's usually, it would be called $5,000 aside is the term terminology. So um, that means that whoever holds the master rights gets that $5,000 and who holds the master rights depends on your depends on your situation. Yeah. Like if you're a self, if you're a self-published artist, if you're a musician and you haven't signed a contract with a record company and you haven't signed a contract with um, a publishing company, which are slightly different, um, then you would be self-published and you would get all of that money. That would be all your money. Unless it was not your song. <laughs> But if it was your song, then you would get all of you would get all the full ten thousand dollars. Mechanical rights, public performance rights, and sync rights all generate income for both songwriters and recording artists. The ways that these royalties are divided depends on the agreements in place between songwriters and their publishers, recording artists and their labels, producers, session musicians, etc. We'll get into how these rights are divided between team members as we follow the paths of both the songwriter and the recording artist throughout this season. What I really want to highlight in this first episode is the importance of knowing your rights as a creator. If you have a song that you recorded and you put it on your computer and no one ever knows about it, there's no money that's ever going to be generated from that song. Clear, clearly, but... You know, the more your music is out there in the world, the more that there are royalties that are being accumulated for you as those three things, a writer, a performer, and an owner. Although unpacking your rights and the rights of all the various people you work with can be challenging, it is crucial to understanding through what means and how much you should be paid each time your song gets played. Thank you to Catherine Calder, Götz Bula, and Byron Pasco for their contributions to this episode. Join me in two weeks for our next episode exploring the role and rights of the songwriter. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Off Key. I've linked to the show notes for this episode in the description, so check those out for a summary of key points, links, and resources on the topics we discussed during this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. They really help us to improve and create the best content possible for our listeners. If you have any topics that you'd like me to cover, please email me at offkey at membrane.net or send me a message at either Membrane Labs or Talia SW on Instagram. This episode of Offkey is written and produced by me, Talia Seidman-Wright. 
with writing and research assistance from Dino Chilotti. Offkey is a member of Membrane Entertainment Canada, aka Membrane Labs, a music services company that provides distribution and label services for Canadian artists and labels. We're also exploring ways, like with this podcast, to help all musical artists be better informed, know their rights, and ensure that they get all of the money that is rightfully owed to them.